Okay, I just want to begin by telling you about uh, Kirk. Uh, Kirk was a friend of mine at university. I want you to imagine Kirk. He's about six foot five, uh, ginger-haired, studying quantity surveying. He is a very good footballer. Uh, He made the the sports team, uh, the football team, the firsts, and he's a centre-back, not afraid of a good, tough tackle. Um, Very popular, very uh, articulate, uh, and yet, I remember very clearly an incident where I saw that big man shake like a leaf. Uh, it was an occasion when we were both given a bundle of invites uh, and told to go in together to the halls of residence, the student halls, to knock on doors and to give these invitations to a, a Christian Union event. Uh, I don't know if you ever you've had that experience, not necessarily door to door, but just the experience of being a reluctant evangelist, a reluctant evangelist. Um, for most of us, I think the reluctance often comes from fear. We don't want to feel uh, foolish or stupid. We certainly don't want to be ridiculed, much less rejected. Uh, and so we're reluctant to, to speak up for Jesus. Uh, But we were introduced, as William said, to a reluctant evangelist last week. Uh, Someone, and as we've discovered last week, his reluctance wasn't so much fear. But when you come to the end of the book in chapter 4 and verses 1 to 3, you see his reluctance actually comes from prejudice. He doesn't want uh, these people that he's been sent to uh, to know about God's kindness and his forgiveness. Um, uh, again, if you were with us last week, we were, we were introduced to, to, to uh, Jonah and how God commissioned him to go to the nation, uh, to the city of Nineveh, the nation of Assyria, uh, of which it's the capital, uh, and there to go and tell them of God's, God's warning against their evil behavior and a call to, to turn from their wicked ways. Uh, that uh, from where Jonah lives in Israel, that is east of where he lives. And so he goes west immediately. Uh, he runs and he gets on a boat going as far west as humanly possible, uh, going to uh, Tarshish. Uh, Jonah, after his long uh, journey, uh, goes to sleep immediately on the boat. We don't know how long they're on the boats for a short time, uh, but very quickly the, the boat is hit by a storm. And while Jonah's asleep, the, the sailors are very much awake, and they're awake to what's really going on. They sense there's something more than an ordinary storm here. They sense that, that there is a divine power behind the fury of the hurricane that they're facing. And so they, they, they cast lots, uh, throw a dice, flip a coin, whatever they did, uh, and they work out uh, the culprit that has brought this disaster upon them, and they identify Jonah. And they call Jonah to give an answer for what uh, he has done and to explain what what has caused this disaster. Uh, And Jonah then spouts some religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, I am a Hebrew. Uh, I worship the God of heaven, the one who made the sea and and the land. But of course, that's a joke, isn't it? It's a joke. Because... He's had a word from the God of heaven, the one he claims to worship. What's he done? Refused to submit to that word. Uh, He claims to worship the God who made the sea. And yet, brilliant idea. Let's run from the God who made the sea by getting on a boat. 
That's brilliant. Well done, Jonah. Uh, and so the, the sailors ask him, what, what are we to do? Um, and he suggests that they throw him overboard. And initially, if you read it for the first time, initially that looks like a wonderful, noble gesture that he's going to sacrifice his life uh, to save theirs. But actually, when you read to the end of the book, you, do, you suspect more strongly that actually it's just that he would rather die than go to Nineveh. And in self-pity, he wants to be thrown overboard. Uh, when he is thrown overboard, however, the storm immediately subsides. And unlike Jonah, the sailors who never had heard of the God of Israel before end up becoming faithful worshippers of the God of Israel. Uh, and they come to know him and to serve him. Well, that was chapter one, uh, and it ended with a splash. It ends with a cliffhanger. And I guess the first surprise is that there even is a chapter two, isn't it? That's the surprise, that there even is a chapter two. Surely that's the end of the story there. He was disobedient. He got walloped the end. But wonderfully, that's not the end of the story. Because after, uh, after the splash, there is a gulp. After the splash, there's a gulp. But before we, again, get into the detail of chapter 2, I just want you to take a step back and see how the book works. I want you to see how the book works. Because chapter 1 and chapter 3 both begin in virtually the same way, virtually identically the same way. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, arise and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Chapter 3. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Arise and go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I will give you. Okay, so virtually identically the same. But Jonah's response is radically different in chapter 1 and chapter 3, isn't it? In chapter 1, he's given this commission. And what does he do? Run in the opposite direction. In chapter 3, what does he do? He obediently goes where God tells him to go. The question is, what has happened to Jonah? What's happened to Jonah? What has happened that has changed this man from being a disobedient prophet to being a willing evangelist? And the answer is chapter 2. Okay, chapter 2. So if you are someone here who would love to be a more willing evangelist, uh, who would love to overcome your fear, maybe even overcome a prejudice that you have, then this is the chapter for you. This is the chapter for you. Uh, and it's the chapter for me because I have to admit that while I and you, are, none of us are called to be prophets like Jonah. God doesn't speak to us directly from uh, in whatever, in an audible voice in the way that he spoke to Jonah clearly. Uh, but we have been, as New Testament Christians, we have been given a commission, a commission by the Lord Jesus to take the good news of what he has done to the nations, to the world, uh, to uh, our neighborhoods, uh, to the people we rub shoulders with, uh, and through our uh, sending other people and supporting missionaries through, and perhaps even going ourselves uh, on short-term mission trips, long-term mission trips to the world. Um, but the truth is we're often unwilling. We're unwilling to speak, uh, unwilling to support that sort of work. And so chapter two is absolutely necessary for us if we are to be changed if we're to be changed in any way 
but before, again, we get uh, into too much of, of the detail of how this chapter works, um, I want to address what I think is not the elephant in the room, but the big fish in the room. I feel I need to say something about the big fish in the room. Can we just play the little song I came across this week uh, to give you a sense of how people feel about it? It ain't necessarily so It ain't necessarily so The things that you libel Read in the Bible It ain't necessarily so Now Jonah lived in a whale Jonah, he lived in a whale He made his home in Fish's abdomen Jonah, he lived in a whale Okay, it ain't necessarily so It ain't necessarily so The things that you're liable to read in the Bible It ain't necessarily so uh, I love that line, uh, he made his home in a fish's abdomen, uh, it ain't necessarily so. Okay, so there's, that is the sense that many, many people that uh, you rub shoulders with, perhaps even you here today, as you read this story, you think, come on, re- come on, come on now. Is it, are you really saying that in all of the Mediterranean Ocean, when this man fell overboard, there just happened to be a fish And not just any old fish, but a fish that was uncommonly huge enough to swallow a man. And in amongst all the gastric juices in the fish's stomach, there happened just to be enough oxygen to sustain a man's life for three days and three nights. Really? Really? Come on. That that certainly is the view of the the atheist and, and the cynic out there. And there's been... Uh, one common response Christians down through the years have tried to give to that objection. Understandable objection, I think we'd all have to admit. Uh, and often one response that Christians have tried to make to that is, oh look, but it's happened before. It's happened before. And they try to look for incidents in, in history of people being swallowed by whales and surviving. And so there was great, great excitement uh, at the turn of the century, when uh, a man called, um, what's his name, James Barclay, when James Barclay, who was born in 1870 and died in 1909, was allegedly swallowed by a whale when he fell over, overboard in the South Atlantic, uh, and the whale was caught 15 hours later, allegedly, uh, by whalers. The whale was dissected, and oh, out popped James Barclay, and it made the headlines in both sides uh, of the pond. Uh, but when you start to look at some of the details, that story gets very, very shaky very, very quickly uh, and has been largely proved to be a fairy tale. No, 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 that's not the way to respond to this story. Um, perhaps this is the only time in the history of the world that this has ever happened. But so what? If you approach this story, however, with the worldview that Jonah has. Look back at Jonah's worldview. Chapter 1, verse 9. He said, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. 
if there really is a God, if there really is a God uh, of heaven who made the sea and the land, then is it really a big deal for him to make a fish that could do this? And so a friend of mine, uh, Andrew Satch, wrote a response to that song that you've just been listening to, an extra verse uh, that was originally penned by uh, George uh, Gershwin, and that was the rendition by uh, Jamie Cullen you just listened to. But uh, Andrew wrote this extra verse. You ain't being logical, though. You ain't being logical, though. If God made the fishes, they'll do as he wishes. You ain't being logical, though. You get his response? If there is a God who's the creator then is it possible for him, if he's made the stars, if he's made the atoms, is it possible for him to make a fish that's big enough to swallow a man and have just the right conditions inside to sustain his life for three days and three nights? That is no big deal for our God to do. Others have responded to that criticism by saying, oh, but look, this is a parable and there's, look, there's all sorts of fables and parables in the Bible, uh, all sorts of stories that are told that have no connection to, to, to history that didn't really happen, but still communicate truth in really helpful ways to us. There's many people out there, many commentators out there who read this book like that, that it's a, a parable. But again, my response to that is to point you to the words uh, of Jesus Uh, In Matthew chapter 12, let me read them to you. Jesus is preaching and being very uh, great popularity. uh, And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law come to him and demand a sign to prove he's legit. Uh, And Jesus says, uh, he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, So the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. So according to Jesus, there were real people who lived in a real city called Nineveh. Who who really repented uh, after the real preaching of a real man called Jonah. He treats verse, the story... Verse 41 uh, on your screen there, he treats that to be historically true and just assumes verse 40 is also historically true and accurate. And as a Christian, if it's good enough for Jesus, that's good enough for me. Okay? Uh, And Jesus would say to the cynic, actually, someone greater than Jonah is here. There's been a greater sign. If you think you're not sure about the reality and the power and the goodness of God, then where should you start? Well, you shouldn't actually start with Jonah. You should start with his resurrection. And if Jesus has been really raised from the dead, well, that opens the floodgates as to what God can do in this world. Okay, do you see the logic? And so what we're meant to say then is that this is, we're to treat this as a true story, that really happened, uh, but we're not to get distracted by the fish. Right? Don't get distracted by the fish. Uh, as you read the story, actually, the fish is only mentioned in three verses. 1 verse 17, 2 verse 1, and 2 verse 10. The fish is not the big player in this story at all. And as one commentator, Sinclair Ferguson, puts it, if we spend too much time focusing on the big fish, we miss the great gods. Okay? 
I think that's really important. Uh, the main actor in this story is God himself. It's God himself. Um, and as we look then carefully at the story, we're meant to see that the fish is not the big player. The action of the fish is not the most important thing in chapter 2. It's actually the commentary that Jonah gives us on God's activity. That's the important thing. And Jonah's commentary comes to us in chapter 2 in the form of a prayer. And it's a prayer that we should echo. And it's a prayer that we should be careful as we read. Okay? A prayer that we should echo uh, and a prayer that we should be very careful as we read it. Uh, because Jonah's experience, uh, I want to argue, is exceptional. Uh, perhaps even unique. I doubt anybody here. In fact, I'm 99.9% sure there's no one here who's been swallowed by a fish and vomited up again on your way to church this afternoon. I just, I just very much doubt that's happened. Um, nevertheless, there are elements to the story of Jonah and the great rescue that he's been given that are true for every single Christian. There's elements to this story that are true and Jonah's experience that are true for every single Christian. First then, this is a prayer that we should echo. This is a prayer that we should echo. Um, verse, um, verse 1. In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Uh, Jonah is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. Um, like a stone, uh, and in his desperation, then he cries out. And this is a prayer of thank you that God heard and answered his prayer. And this prayer, I think, has two elements to it that should actually be true for every single Christian. The first element is that he recognized he was under the judgment of God. He recognized he was under the judgment of God. I don't think you've got a, a clearer case of defiance and dis, direct disobedience to God, perhaps, in all of the Old Testament than this one. God tells him to do one thing, and he does exactly the opposite. And so in response to God's uh, commission to go and speak for him, he abandons his ministry uh, to God and refuses to speak for God. And then while he's on the run, we looked at this last week, while he's on the run, in the boat, he abandons his relationship with God and refuses uh, to speak to God. Uh, again, I think as he's thrown overboard, um, I, I think reading it backwards from what we know in chapter 4, I actually don't think it's a, a, an example of noble self-sacrifice. I think it is his refusal even at that point to repent. He'd rather die than go to Nineveh. And nevertheless, as, his, as he's sinking to the bottom of the ocean, uh, the fear of death strips away all his bravado. Uh, he's terrified by what is about to happen to him. Uh, I think we read the, the, the terror in his description there in verse 5. I wonder, did you see it? Verse 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me, seaweed wrapped round my heads, the roots of the to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. 
Uh, he reckons that he is going uh, to the depths. Uh, it's really that he, he speaks these words literally from the belly of Sheol, the place of the Jewish and the Jewish thought, the place of the dead. As he sinks down, he's sure he is a goner. He's sure he's a goner. Um, He is sure that his life is over. Um, And he describes what is about to happen to him as a bit like walking through the gates of death with the gates closing behind him. Like the, the maximum security prison with the gates shut and there is no escape. Death is like the maximum security prison from which no one ever escapes. And yet, from the very point of death, he cries out in desperation and God hears him. But he also recognizes in this prayer that he is here because he is under the judgment of God. That's why he's there. Um, Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea. If you've read chapter 1, that's, that's actually not what happened at one level. God didn't throw him into the sea. The sailors threw him into the sea at his suggestion. And yet, nevertheless, he's exactly right, because God sent the storm. Um, we recognize that he has been hurled in there because he is under God's judgment. He's been thrown overboard uh, because God was angry with him. Uh, Notice verse 3 as well. And the currents swirled above me, and your waves and breakers swept over me. It's not just the waves and the breakers, but but your waves. I am here because you put me here. Uh, And notice there's uh, no attempt in any way to defend himself or to excuse his behavior. Verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight. He recognizes that he is here because God is angry with him and he deserves it. And he deserves it. He's no excuses to offer anymore. And so first element of this prayer is that he recognizes that he is under the judgment of God. But then the second element of the prayer is that he rejoices in God's rescue. He rejoices in God's rescue. He's come to the brink of death. He's in in the depths of the sea, and yet he calls out in desperation, uh, even though he is, all his problems are self-inflicted, uh, he calls out uh, and has desperate, calls out a desperate prayer. And at this point, you're tempted to say to Jonah, you've got a nerve, haven't you? You've got a nerve praying now. Do you really think after what you've done and as far as you've traveled that God will hear you? you really think that he'll rescue you after what you've done? And yet, wonderfully, that's exactly what happens. God, who is a God of grace and compassion, the God of kindness. Uh, and by the way, if you were to learn a memory verse, which I commend to you now, a memory verse that summarizes what Jonah is all about, I would actually commend chapter 4, verse 2, the second half of it. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That's what this book is all about. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. A God of compassion and grace. 
a God of kindness and mercy. And so God is willing to accept the long-distance call from almost death and wonderfully answers. And again, uh, I just want to say, even though the specifics of this situation are not true for us, uh, even though we have never been swallowed by a fish, uh, those two elements are true for every single Christian. Every single Christian has to come to a point at some stage in their lives where they recognize, I am under the judgment of God because of my disobedience, because of my defiance, because of my pride, because of my prejudice. I deserve to be punished by God. To become a Christian, you have to come to that realization that at some point you deserved the punishment of God. You deserve to be banished. I deserve to be banished from the presence of God forever and cut off from all his good gifts forever. And I have no excuse and I deserve it. And yet, wonderfully, we also, as Christians, have come to the point where we've realized that God has offered us a surprising rescue. Jonah was offered a surprising rescue, wasn't it? First, a surprising rescuer a fish, and a surprising method of rescue, being swallowed, then vomited. But for us, it's an even greater surprise. We have been sent down to us has been an even greater rescuer, the second person of the Trinity, who took on a human nature and became one of us. A surprising method of rescue. He went to the cross where he bore the full weight of God's judgment that we deserved for all our defiance and disobedience, pride and prejudice, was put upon him. He took the hit for us that we might be set free from the judgment we deserve. That is what uh, this, this in, in that sense, Jonah's experience and our experience have a, a, a remarkable overlap, actually, a remarkable overlap. This is a wonderful prayer that captures for us uh, a real, the realization of our own guilt, our own deserving of God's punishment, and yet the joy, the joy of being rescued uh, from helplessness and hopelessness. This is a prayer that every Christian should echo. But it's also a prayer, and we have to cover this very quickly. We'll come more to this in chapter 4. It's a prayer with pride and prejudice we must avoid. This prayer comes with a health warning. Um, I I was looking through various various preachers, how they tackled uh, chapter 2 this week, and and I came across uh, one sermon by uh, a preacher I know who entitled his prayer, or entitled his sermon, The Prayer, that made the fish sick. Okay, the prayer that made the fish sick. I think that probably goes too far, to be honest. But there's some things that if you read this prayer carefully are nauseating when you spot them. And they're mainly there in verses uh, 8 and 9. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with songs of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. For I have vowed, I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Uh, 
I think there's two, two hints that there's something wrong here. Uh, number one is, uh, I tried to emphasize it just there, the, the, the number of eyes that are in there. Uh, Jonah is saying effectively, I'm so grateful for your rescue. Uh, so th- I, I was here because I deserved it, but you heard my cry and you rescued me. Thank you so much. But obviously there's no hope for those guys, those who worship idols. But, but, I, but I've offered the right prayer, but, but I will offer the right sacrifice and I will make the right vow. Again, just a hint that something is, something is wrong. Something is wrong. He manages to say thank you in quite a self-congratulating, self-righteous way. Second hint, something is wrong. Look at the, the verbs that he uses, the doing words. But I will sacrifice to you for what I have vowed, I will make good. When you read this in the context of the book, These verbs in this order have been used before. Just glance back to chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, This was the moment last week where we celebrated revival kicking kicking off in the boats and the conversion of the pagans at this. The men greatly feared the Lord and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. They worshipped God and dedicated their lives to God. And here in chapter 2, however, we have Jonah Claiming for himself what our God wants to offer. Claiming uniquely for himself what God wants to offer to others. His mercy. Again, it's just a hint that something is wrong here that we see very clearly when we get to chapter 4. We have a man who is very happy to be the one who receives God's mercy but is very quick to look down on those who don't deserve it. At one level, uh, he, he, he's right, isn't he? Those, those who do worship other gods and refuse to turn and trust in the living God of Israel, the God of the Bible, uh, whose son is Jesus Christ, if they've refused to, to turn to him, they will not get into heaven. That is right. But what Jonah is actually saying is, thank you for, for your mercy to me, but those guys have no hope. Those guys have no hope. And so I'm happy to go to Nineveh uh, in gratitude to you, but I'm confident that, that they'll never repent, that they'll never do the right thing, they'll never turn to you. Again, we see a hint, I think, uh, in ourselves often as we are very quick to look down on other people around us, to look at other people, uh, perhaps those who have a different religion those who are Muslim, for example, to be topical, uh, those who are athe- hardened atheists and think, well, I'm so glad for, for the rescue that you've given to me, but there's no hope for those guys. There's no, I, I might as well not even bother trying to tell them about Jesus. It just would never work. Waste of time. There's no hope for them. And the danger then at that point is we remain silent. We remain silent. And so prejudice, like Jonah, makes us reluctant evangelists. But imagine the scandal, just for a moment. Imagine the scandal uh, if there was a bunch of scientists who found a cure for a very common type of cancer, but they kept 
the news of that discovery to themselves. That would be, it would just be worldwide outrage, wouldn't there? And yet the danger is that we have a gospel that is so beautiful, a gospel that could be life-changing, destiny-changing, and yet we keep it to ourselves out of fear or prejudice. How are we meant to read this story? Again, I think we, we shouldn't be distracted by the fish, but we should see in the way that the author has put this book together is that the cure for us to be obedient, willing evangelists is actually to understand, to grasp, number one, that we were hopeless and helpless and deserving the judgment of God, rightly so, and be humbled by that, and then filled with great joy that we ha- he heard our prayer. He sent a savior for us that was even greater than a fish. And in a more unlikely rescue, he sent his son to die for you and for me. And when we grasp the, the, just the level of our plight, and the height of our privilege, and we put those two together, well, it gives you humble boldness, I think. Humble boldness. Because everyone needs this message. Everybody needs this message. And God is powerful enough, chapter 1, and merciful enough, chapter 2, to save anybody. And we'll see more about that next week. For that, you'll have to come back. Uh, But let me pray for us now. Before we turn to the Lord's table, and we celebrate uh, that we were lost, hopeless and helpless, and yet God heard our our cry and provided us with a great rescuer. Let's pray.